How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. You are Locked On Knicks, your daily podcast on the New York Knicks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, my city and wide. Yeah, let me take my time. I'm on my grind. Gotta make sure that we shine. What's yours is mine, and what's mine is yours. HR to the death and first always my team for sure. Go roll. Can't fall off. Got a family support. Gotta make sure we succeed and reach our dream. Now live through me. I'm about to take off. Hello and welcome to the Locked On Knicks podcast. This is episode 33. I'm your host, Jared Dubin. Today we will be talking about the latest developments in the Derrick Rose sexual assault trial, which as of now is still scheduled to start next week. Before we do that, a few quick notes. I want to say thank you once again to Sean Scott for the intro music and his manager, LeVar, for the hookup. The song is called Good Times. It's produced by Pav Bundy. You can find Sean's music on SoundCloud and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Scott HR. I also want to be sure to note that the Locked On Knicks podcast and the Locked On Podcast Network are presented in partnership with FanRag Sports. You can check out todaysfastbreak.com for their content, and you can find a link to the podcast on their Knicks page, as well as an archive of the podcast on all of their Knicks-related articles. While you're over there, be sure to check out Locked On NBA, hosted by David Locke, the radio voice of the Utah Jazz, and be on the lookout for Locked On Fantasy Basketball, hosted by Josh Lloyd for all your fantasy basketball needs. You are probably getting into fantasy basketball draft season pretty soon if you're a fantasy basketball player. Josh can definitely hook you up with extensive fantasy tidbits and knowledge about every team in the league. Be sure to subscribe to both of those podcasts as well as the Locked on Knicks podcast on iTunes and leave a review. You can also find the podcasts on Audioboom and or Stitcher. And if you're a New York sports fan, be on the lookout for Locked on Giants hosted by Art Stapleton of The Record and Locked on Jets hosted by John Butchko of Gangrene Nation. As I've said many times before, both of those guys are doing great work with those podcasts and will continue to do so throughout the rest of the NFL season. Be sure to listen to those as well. And with that, let's get to our guest, Dan Worley, a sports lawyer that runs the essential sports law blog, The White Bronco. We talked to Dan a couple weeks ago about the Derrick Rose case, and we're going to do that again today. Dan, thanks for coming on, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. No problem. So there has been... A lot of stuff that has happened since the last time we spoke about this case. Um, let's go through the latest developments first. Sure. Um, the Jane Doe has filed uh, a motion to reopen the issue of anonymity, which is one of the big things we talked about on that first podcast. Uh, in between then and now, uh, the judge had ruled that the plaintiff's name could be used at trial uh, for several reasons, and... An LAPD detective sent her attorneys a letter that stated that there was a criminal investigation uh, regarding the alleged events of the night in question going on. And based on that, they have filed a motion to reissue the uh, reopen the issue of anonymity because as part of that letter, it stated that investigations could possibly be prejudiced by 
the the plaintiff's name coming out. Do I have that right? You do, you do. And, and just to kind of fill in a couple details, uh, you know, the judge recognized that no matter how he ruled on this issue, there was going to be prejudice to either side. And basically what he was doing is balancing uh, the prejudice to each party and whoever would be prejudiced more by his ruling, you know, he would rule in their favor. So he, he found that uh, his main thing was that if she's allowed to proceed with the name Jane Doe at trial, this will give the idea to the to the jury that uh, the court, including the judge, has already sort of prejudged her as uh, being a victim and that, and that Rose is guilty. And, and there's some case law that says that. Um, and so that was kind of what he hung his hat on. Uh, and then just a few days after, as you mentioned, uh, Doe filed, this is obviously a, a big issue for a number of reasons. You know, we heard her uh, in her kind of media interviews talk about why that was so important to her. Her family doesn't know that she's involved in this case. Uh, you know, she's worried about harassment, a few other things. Uh, so she filed a motion for reconsideration, it's called, and in order to, to even ask the judge to reconsider, because, you know, she's basically asking the judge to relook at what he already ruled and determine that he made a mistake. So, uh, you know, just common sense tells you that judges, you know, infrequently grant those requests and are kind of perturbed when parties even file them, but under the legal standard to even have the ability to grant that request, he has to find that there's something new, some new fact that happened or came out since he last ruled. And, and as you mentioned, uh, Doe's attorneys are, are looking at this letter from the LAPD, which says that there's a current and open, quote unquote, investigation, criminal investigation uh, into this case, um, which arguably is new information. They're currently, you know, obviously the, this letter didn't exist before, but those attorneys had argued that there was this open investigation. Rose's attorneys denied it. Uh, Rose's attorneys just late, late last night uh, filed a response to that and basically argued a little bit of semantics saying that, you know, they didn't say that there was never an investigation. They were just saying that there was no pending let me get this word, but there's no criminal case pending and no charges have been filed. And so this this isn't news at all. This is basically what the parties have been arguing since, uh, or had known since December 15 when the criminal case was first opened. So um, that that's basically what's going on with that issue. You know, she also, fought, she also has this argument that since the judge's ruling, uh, there's been people all over social media and all over the internet that are, putting up pictures of her and revealing her name in different places and that she uh, fears for her safety because of this, um, which, you know, people don't do that. The judge has an order out there saying that uh, her name should not be revealed until the actual trial starts. So um, that's another one of her arguments. Uh, again, I, you know, it's tough to see this as something that's different or new. She had sort of made those arguments before, and that's, that's what Rose's attorneys are coming back with. So... Um, it'll be interesting to see that that, that motion is up uh, in front of the court tomorrow, uh, as well as a few others. Yeah, that's where I was going to go next. Like, do you think this qualifies as new evidence? I mean, the, the letter is certainly new evidence, you know, fully recognizing that there is uh, an, an open criminal investigation. But I think that Rose's attorney's argument makes a lot of sense, where they said that you know, this is something we already knew. Like, she went to the police in December 2015 
and it's obvious that the police, you know, investigate all claims such as the one that she's brought, and them simply acknowledging it doesn't change the fact that they already knew it existed, and there's still no charges that have been filed against any of the three defendants, including Rose. That seems to make sense to me. And if they've already considered that in, you know, in, like you said, balancing the interests of, you know, the plaintiff's anonymity against the prejudice against uh, Rose and Hampton and Allen at the trial, it, it doesn't seem to, to me that it, that this new and quote unquote new information uh, should tip the balance at all. Exactly. That's another argument that they're making is that, uh, you know, Rose's attorneys are saying that, hey, judge, look, at this is this is the prejudice that you were balancing. And the fact that there's this open, quote unquote, open and continuous criminal investigation going had nothing to do with the prejudice that you were talking about in your order. So how does this even matter? And the fact that this is already argued before and known, um, it, you know, so because of that and because these motions are, are, you know, very rarely granted, I think that there's a high likelihood that the judge won't. But I will say that if the judge, uh, you know, obviously this was a controversial decision on his part. There was a lot of, uh, you know, kind of, I won't say negative things written about it, but just a lot of people that were kind of shocked by the decision. Although, you know, he did have some legal back backing to do it. If he is, like, second-guessing that decision since it happened, uh, for whatever reason, you know, this may give him the opportunity, something to legally hang his hat on if he wants to change it. So, uh, you know, I, I do think that there's a high likelihood that Rose wins wins this motion or, you know, their, the Doe's request is denied. I think there's still a possibility that it happens. So on the initial ruling on her anonymity, were you surprised that he ruled in Rose's favor? I mean, I was at first because, you know, as we talked about when, uh, when Rose's team first filed the motion to not have her... Uh, be anonymous at trial, I thought there was really only one good argument in there. A lot of it was like the typical quote-unquote slut-shaming arguments um, that have been used by other high-profile people that have been accused of these kind of things. And the argument to me that I thought made the most sense, as like we talked about, was you know the ability to fully face his accuser and fully investigate her claims, and that's difficult to do if you can't use her name at all. And that wasn't even the argument that the judge used um, to, to rule in Rose's favor. So I was a little bit surprised when I read the reasoning there. Was that where you fell, or were you expecting him to uh, to rule in Rose's favor? Yeah, well, so to your first point about that kind of uh, that argument, and I agree that that was probably his best argument at the time, but you have to remember the timing of it. Um, you know, when he was ruling, he was talking about doing this pre-trial, so it was in the middle of discovery when they could actually gather more facts. So if he knew more information and people coming in with her name, it would have mattered. Well, at trial, basically all the evidence that they have, they already have. So whether she was revealed, you know, at, at trial, it wouldn't matter if he knew her name because if, even if someone came forward, it's kind of unlikely that they would be able to use that evidence anyway. So um, that being said... Um, the only reason that I wasn't, I, and I wasn't surprised, but the only reason I wasn't surprised is because there was kind of, right when the judge ruled the first time in his ruling, he came out and said that he was concerned about this issue, that uh, the jury would, would prejudge the case if she was going under the Jane Doe pseudonym. Um, and so I kind of saw that as a sign that um, he's he was concerned about this issue. I think that, you know, 
for a lot of the reasons that we've talked about it, such as you know the, the you know the fan the bad fans out there that are going to drag her through the mud and all the media coverage on her that would be bad and tough for her. Um, he wanted to minimize that, but he also knew that this this other type of prejudice was an issue based on you know precedent of case law. And, you know, he had this little two-sentence, three-sentence note in his first order when he said he was going to revisit it at, at the pretrial stage that kind of tipped me off that he was really thinking about it. So when he did rule that way, I wasn't totally shocked. That makes sense. This is, that's obviously something that's still um, ongoing. I, I do want to talk about several uh, motions to exclude evidence, which is... You know, obviously a big thing once the trial actually starts, which again is scheduled to start next week. And there were several things in there that we talked about on the last podcast that we thought were, were strange things to be introduced into evidence. And a bunch of them were either wholly excluded or partially excluded, um, including the video of uh, Jane Doe watching uh, Lady Gaga performance from the Grammys of the song about being a, a sexual assault survivor. Um, there was evidence of phone calls by, I think, Randall Hampton, but it may have been Ryan Allen, um, calling escort services, which was an attempt to prove that he would do anything for sex. Um, there were photos of the plaintiff uh, partying. I can't remember if it was before or after the alleged night. It's after. After uh, in Las Vegas and supposedly sexually suggestive, um, I believe they were allowed to include five photos um, as opposed to all of them. Then there was evidence of her interactions with her attorney, evidence of prior relationships. I mean, what did you think about all of the, the ways those motions turned out? Well, I think we nailed the Lady Gaga one on the head. Yeah, that did not make sense at all. Not only did they lose it, they uh, those attorneys actually just conceded it at at the mo- at the hearing. They didn't even try to argue because they kind of realized, I think, that that was kind of a foolish way to go. That was um, extremely prejudicial, I think we would say. <laughs> uh, you know, I think uh, there was a few that stuck out to me. In you know, there's one that's kind of still going on. That's the prior relationships and sexual predisposition evidence and. Uh, that's something that's going to be, it's still out. He ruled that it's out for now, but they're going to revisit it on the, like the eve of trial, basically, um, under this special rape shield law rule. Uh, so that's still out there. Um, you know, one that stuck out to me as important And, was and that, that seems really important, too, before you continue, by the way, because that's something that uh, defense attorneys very often use to question the plaintiff's character in these kind of cases. Exactly. And we've seen... Rose's attorneys use that strategy frequently um, in their briefings to this point, and you know, I think it probably will be something that would be a big part of their strategy if they're allowed to use it. So. And, and quickly on that, I mean, the the legal argument there is that she hasn't put, you know, her sexual past or her character at issue. When I would assume that Rose's side would argue that in a rape case, the sexual character is always at issue, which is sort of a general argument that defenses always make exactly and so uh yeah it'll it'll be an interesting ruling uh the judge said that these obviously fall under what's uh, this federal rule of evidence that precludes um this type of evidence of other relationships um 
sexual predisposition, things like that. But there's this exception, as you noted, to that rule that says if the accuser, Jane Doe in this instance, brings them into issue, then the defendant is allowed to introduce more evidence of that. So, as you said, like she argues that she didn't, he argues that he did, and we'll see what happens. Right. What was the other uh, important... Yeah, uh, so... The other one that, and I was kind of surprised that the judge ruled the way he did, but he he said that Jane Doe will be allowed to testify that she felt like she was drugged uh, the night of August 26th, 27th. And the reason I was surprised is because both experts, including her own expert, said that there's no evidence of her being drugged. Um, So it would seem to be something that would be prejudicial when there's absolutely no evidence out there. Um, But the judge basically said that She's allowed to testify how she feels, and she felt that way, and she felt that she was more intoxicated than she ever had been in her life, so she's going to be allowed to testify about it. Now, why that's important not only is for the obvious impact of the jury uh, hearing her full testimony, but uh, Rose's expert actually, which is not great for him, actually is on in her expert report, his expert report, excuse me, um, said that based on everything that he's seen, that Doe acted under the, you know, based on her testimony and what's come out, she seemed to have been in what's in an advanced intoxication state, basically blowing a .20, which is, I think, twice, more than twice the legal limit in most states. Um, and so that would, you know, go to whether or not she could have consented because she was intoxicated. And so how this legally works, sorry to, this may be a little confusing, but if she testifies that she felt drugged, the only really way that Rose's legal team can rebut that is by putting on their own expert to say she clearly wasn't drugged, there's no evidence of drugging. But if they put on their own expert on the witness stand, then those attorneys can ask them about his expert reports, which say she was intoxicated, which actually cuts against Rose. So um, that gets a little bit of a tricky legal procedure there, but uh, it, it could it could be a really interesting uh, legal strategy at trial whether or not Rose's attorneys decide to put this expert on that could ultimately hurt them in the end. Right, and that's all relevant because, like you said, the issue of consent is the main issue here because they're, they're all acknowledging that sex occurred, but consent is not just affirmative consent because it's possible that she could have consented but been so intoxicated or so drugged that she legally wasn't able to give consent, and if you can pr- somehow prove that that Rose and Hampton and Allen should have reasonably known that she was in that state, which is you know where all of the, the the text messages and phone calls that she's not answering when she's home for an hour or so come into play, then that would go towards proving that she didn't consent, and th- and that's again the main issue here. So it's all tangled up in several different ways. Exactly, you nailed it. Yeah. And so, are there any more of these evidentiary motions that you thought could have that kind of effect on, on one of these issues? I mean, the the escort services stuff doesn't seem to, to hold much water to me. That was already thrown out. Um, I think that there was a motion to from Rose's side to exclude um, witnesses to his NCAA testing, which I guess puts his character in question and, and would be evidence that he lies. Exactly, and I, 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 if 
find it hard to believe that that's going to find its way into the trial. It just seems so so far out of what's relevant here that um, that it just can't be allowed in. But uh, that hasn't been argued yet. It was filed kind of right before the last hearing, and uh, I believe that one is up for tomorrow, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Right. And uh, I'm trying to remember if there are any more of these yeah. evidentiary motions. It's sort of important that... Um, was up at the last hearing and the parties discussed it, but they continued it on. And that's uh, whether or not there's these three witnesses, uh, right? The two roommates and then a coworker who are planning on testifying about what Jane Doe told them about what happened after the fact. Uh, the coworker is going to say that she came into work, didn't look great, seemed out of sorts. He came into her office to talk about it. She told him that she thought she was raped, but she didn't know a few other things. Um, the, the roommates are going to testify uh, about what she told them at later dates. She didn't tell them that day, but actually later, uh, later on the line, I think they, it was like six or seven days later, um, that she thought she was raped. Um, and, and basically, Rose's argument is this is all hearsay, um, and it shouldn't be allowed in. So... We'll see what happens there. Those are, um, you know, fairly important witnesses for Doe's Doe's version of the facts to kind of corroborate the story, uh, her story. Right. And then there's, so quickly, one last thing on the the sexual behavior motions on, you know, prior relationships and relationships after. Right right now, as you said, they're going to exclude it, but they're going to reopen that shortly before trial. If they go to trial, and if the, that winds up being reversed and it's allowed to be included, what's the strategy then on both sides? Obviously, Rosa's side uh, brings it up, uses it against her. They use those photos. They use uh, her alleged relationship with other NBA players. I think they've said like Nick Young or some other guys, um, and her you know partying in Las Vegas shortly after. Um, so I feel like from their side, it's obvious what they use it for. On her side, how do you combat that? I mean, I, w- I would assume it's through some sort of uh, expert witness that says, you know, rape victims deal with these things in different ways, and being sexually active does not necessarily preclude her having been raped. I mean, I would assume that's the way they have to go, right? Yeah, that's they did do have that expert witness in. Uh, I believe she's a PhD psychologist who's going to testify that, uh, you know, Every rape victim handles this a different way, and the way that she acted is not out of out of the realm of possibilities, not out of the ordinary. Um, and, you know, and it's it'll be interesting to see how Rose's attorneys handle it. They've obviously been extremely aggressive to this point, arguing that, but they're not yet in front of the jury, and that's something you always got to keep in mind about how how these things are going to look in front of the jury. And I, I think there's at least the argument that this could make Rose look bad in front of the jury, like he's trying to blame something else, and they'll, they'll kind of see that as almost a negative on his side of, of, of blaming her. Uh, maybe not. And I think, you know, different people vary in, in the way that they'll take that information. Um, but just to that point, I think at trial, when it actually is on the line and when they're actually, if they're actually able to use this information, it'll be interesting to see how they proceed under those circumstances. For sure. Um, last time we talked about this case, we both expected the sides to come to a settlement 
before trial started, before the preseason started, um, because neither one of them seemed to have an ironclad case, and they both had you know tons of motivation to to settle before things got to trial, and they potentially lost. Is that still where you're at, based on the latest developments, and and based on things like Phil Jackson and Derek Rose saying that you know they're not overly concerned about the trial? And Rose saying he'll be found innocent. Um, you know, Phil Jackson saying Derek's not losing sleep, which was like, I mean, good lord, what you, how tone deaf can you be talking about this case? Yeah, right. um, so, what, what did you think about the, the comments from from Phil and Rose? And, and do you still expect there to be a settlement? Uh, I agree that with your characterization that they're well, especially Phil Jackson's were tone deaf. Um, I was surprised a little bit yesterday that Rose came out and, and kind of answered questions as directly as you ever see Derek Rose answer a question. Um, I've been a Chicago Bulls fan for forever, but having lived in Chicago the last six or seven years, I had season tickets, followed the team very closely. He's not a great interview. Um, you know, he tends to kind of say things that are very surprising. Um, so I was surprised that he, he, his lawyers actually let him come out and talk about it, and then he did. I don't think he said anything that was... Yeah, typically, you just get the standard, like, this case is still pending. I've been advised by my lawyers not to talk about it. He basically exactly. was like, exactly. I'm That's not worried. My lawyers are handling it. I'm innocent. Right. And I think the only real surprising thing to come from Rose's interview was that he said that when the person asked him the question about the criminal investigation, that was the first time he had heard about it, uh, which is a little bit alarming. Because now Rose's attorneys are backtracking and saying that they've known about this since December 2015. Um, so you'd think that... I would, su- I would assume the, the argument there know. is the lawyers would say, we knew about it, but Rose didn't. Right. I, well, this is a whole other different discussion if the lawyers have an obligation to tell him about that. But right. um, So back to your other question about settlement, I still believe that the most likely outcome at this point is settlement. I think that I'm less confident in them reaching a settlement than I was the last time we talked. Um, and we were both like, we both expected it, but also expressed like serious doubts because of, you know, the, the conduct of the lawyers and the way they wrote about each other and in all of these motions and stuff like that. Right. And that's, that had, uh, you know, uh, for example, in, in the last hearing, and at this, this, I'm not saying that this wasn't a mistake, but, you know, Rose's attorney said her name on the record uh, right, again. in the open courtroom, right? And uh, the judge, I, I, I mean, I wasn't there, so I don't know how he acted in person, but in the, in the order right after, threatened to sanction him uh, for $1,000 uh, and didn't do so immediately, but asked, required him to like basically file a letter with the court explaining what went wrong, and he wrote an apology. But anyway, like the parties are still going after each other as hard as ever. Uh, you and know, I think, I think today on that on that issue, the attorney offered to donate five thousand dollars to a rape victims charity rather than a thousand dollars in sanctions, which was somewhat strange. Exactly, and it, you know. Uh, the issue with that is just kind of behind the scenes. The lawyer doesn't want a sanction to be on his record. Uh, he would rather pay more for it not to be on his record. And that's a great PR move on his part. And I don't doubt that it wasn't, you know, 
a genuine move. And he, his wife, I guess, is very involved with this rape treatment center charity. Um, so I think it was a brilliant move on his part, frankly. And we'll see what the judge does tomorrow. Um, but in any event, you know, I think, I think, you know, my prediction from weeks, months ago, has been that there would be a, a settlement on the eve of trial. But, the, you know, the closer you get, the less time they have. And when they're still battling like this, it's just kind of hard to imagine them being reasonable over the phone in uh, talking about a settlement number. But um, that can change very quickly, and it could come all together very, very quickly. So, um, I don't know. What do you think? Do we know if there have been more settlement negotiations lately? Because I, the last time we talked about this, I think they had said that there haven't really been many of late. But if there have been more, that's obviously a good sign, even though they're still sniping at each other uh, in, in court and in court documents. Because that's just, you know, they're advocating for their clients, they're doing it as forcefully as possible. But if they're negotiating outside of that, that's a sign that they're moving towards a settlement, at least, or, or towards being able to move towards it. Um, you know, I, I still think that they there's too much motivation on both sides to settle before trial. She obviously does not want her name to come out. He obviously does not want to be potentially liable for millions of dollars to to have to go on a witness stand when he should be playing preseason games um, to potentially be found guilty in this case. There's, there's so much motivation on both sides that it, it seems like it should overwhelm whatever feelings there are between the lawyers or whatever feelings there are between the parties. But that's yeah, what I thought the, before. The one thing that's hanging out there that I, have, I don't think it's, I mean, people have talked about it a little bit, but it's, this is kind of speculation because I haven't seen Rose's Adidas contracts, and all these contracts have what's called a morals clause within them, but they're all negotiated, so the language is all different. I don't know what it says, but there's at least a possibility that, uh, and, and probably a less possibility, but if, if he is to settle, that's sort of a sign of, of uh, fault on his part. Um, and so there may be a chance that Adidas would be able to cancel that contract. And I think there's $100 million left on the contract. So that's obviously a much bigger deal than even this lawsuit is. It's only a, even at worst case scenario, it's only a fifth of the money. Um, so I don't, you know, without seeing that contract, it's hard to say, but there's at least that possibility of that being out there. His attorneys clearly know what that contract says. Um, and if they think it's in jeopardy with a settlement, they are, you know, probably under no circumstances going to settle. Yeah, and I would imagine any sort of settlement would include some sort of gag order about talking about the case ever again. But so much has already come out that it, it almost doesn't even matter if she can talk about it ever again. I, I mean, the the text messages and the things he's said in depositions are sort of damaging enough, and, and based just on that it seems like they have some sort of argument for, especially if he admits any wrongdoing in a settlement, but I would imagine any settlement uh, would come with, you know, no ad admission of guilt. Exactly. But, um, and that's a great point, and, and that's sort of the balance, or the, you know, what they're weighing right now. Um, and obviously, if he's found not liable at trial, that all that kind of goes away, and it's sort of, it would be near impossible, I would imagine, for them to, to take, or Adidas to take action at that point. So, that could be one thing that's going on behind the scenes that, you know, hasn't been getting too much attention. Yeah, for sure. Obviously, a lot of developments left to come out over the next week or so. Trial scheduled to start October 4th, which I believe is Monday. 
Tuesday, I think. Tuesday? Is yeah, it Tuesday? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. October 4th. Yeah, Tuesday. You're right. Um, anyway, if the trial goes forward, I would imagine we'll be talking again. If the trial settles, I would imagine we'll be talking again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it once again. Do you want to let uh, the listeners know where to find you, uh, what you got coming up, things like that? Sure, yeah. Um, my website's www.thewhitebronco.com. Uh, and we've, you know, I probably put an article out on this case every other day or so. There should be one coming out today or tomorrow morning with all this information and then anything else that happens today, sort of a little update article. Um, you know, I, I'm on Twitter probably too much uh, at Word Sports Law, and I, I, as soon as things come out, you know, I'll kind of go through the, through the briefs, pull out the most important parts and send them out there. So do give me a follow on Twitter, and then try not to unfollow me as soon as this case is over. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and that's about it. I wrote uh, something for the Cauldron last week on, on five reasons why, even if he doesn't think he has any liability whatsoever, that Rose should settle. So that's uh, one to check out if you have a minute. Great. Um, I highly suggest checking out that article, which I, I already read, and, and following Dan on Twitter, like he said, at Worley Sports Law. And if you're at all interested in this case or any other case, there's a section uh, on the top of his website about trending cases that has all sorts of information and documents from all the cases, which, you know, if you want to get your own view and not just, you know, listening to us or reading articles from other sites that are mostly slanted toward one side or the other, definitely suggest checking out the documents yourself so you can form your own opinion um, on all these different things. Uh, thanks, Dan, once again. Really appreciate it. And people, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Leave a review, preferably a Bill Walker star rating. That's five stars. You can find the podcast on Audio Boom and or Stitcher as well. Thanks so much for listening. I will be back with podcasts Thursday and Friday as planned. Is that the new iPhone? Yeah, got it on T-Mobile. Fastest iPhone deserves America's fastest LTE network. Introducing the amazing iPhone 8. It's the best iPhone yet, now on America's best unlimited network. For a limited time, save up to $300 on the amazing iPhone 8 after 24 monthly bill credits. And now join T-Mobile's iPhone upgrade program for free. Eligible trade-in and finance agreement required. If you cancel service, you may lose promo credits. Contact us for details. Video at 480p. Small fraction of users over 50 gigs per month may have reduced speed. See store for details.